Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Bob Tankuski, an M&A advisor in the Atlanta area. In this episode, Bob shares how he was able to take an offer made on his client's business by a strategic buyer and through the application of both skill and using the strategic buyer's own financial metrics was able to convince the buyer and their advisors that it was to their benefit not to pay two or three but four times more than the original offer to acquire his client's business. You really need to listen in on this episode to find out how Bob was able to pull off this tremendous increase in value in the negotiation process. Then Bob shares how a race car driver took his skills from the racetrack into the boardroom and built a successful company that became well-known in the automotive aftermarket performance industry, where the need for speed is important and to make a bundle of money while creating that need for speed and filling that market. However, as with a lot of entrepreneurs that have a specific skill set, the managerial complexities often overtakes them with the rigors of actually managing a growing business when their skill set is not in this managerial wheelhouse. When this happens, burnout can set in. I want you to listen in as Bob outlines what this entrepreneur did when he sold his company and what you can learn from this transaction, what you should do and what you should not do. Finally, Bob shares how an event planning business had more than a fair offer on the table, but the founder entrepreneur hesitated and didn't take the offer because he felt he could get more for his business because his business was, in his mind, actually worth a lot more. And as they say, time kills deals. And sadly, in this specific situation, time killed this deal. You'll need to learn what happened and how this tremendous loss of value took place, because shortly after turning down the offer, the revenue dropped over 95% because of unforeseen circumstances. Although the business survived, it's going to take years for the entrepreneur founder to rebuild his business, a difficult task for someone in their 60s. There are some great takeaways from this transaction and the other stories shared in this episode. Also, on this episode, I've invited Diane Murphy, a mindset business coach, to join me to help me do a deeper dive into how entrepreneurs and founders can optimize the value of their business when they are positioning it to sell. Be sure to listen to our post-mortem discussion with Diane at the end of this podcast episode. So, let's dive in. 
This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today we have an interesting guest who has been in the business for a long time and is located in the Atlanta area. Bob, would you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your firm and where you're located and kind of what your specialty is? Yeah, I'd be glad to, Marvin. Diane, thanks for having me. Uh, Bob Tankisley, I'm a, a principal in a boutique investment bank here in the North Atlanta area, really the North Georgia market. Uh, as a boutique investment bank, we're commonly representing sellers uh, that need to find an outside buyer for their companies. And so we build that buyer pool, uh, negotiate uh, with buyers that present themselves and hopefully get a deal uh, across the finish line in the form of a closing. All right. Well, that's exciting. So let's kind of jump in here. We're going to talk about a transaction that we have that uh, kind of had its challenges, uh, maybe went well enough to close and maybe kind of blew up and didn't close. So Bob, why don't you uh, pick out of your portfolio of deals you've dealt with over the years and chat about one that had its challenges and maybe didn't even close, or maybe you were able to get it across the closing line. Uh, sure. Let, let's go with one that uh, that didn't close. And under the heading of the business is too dependent on the owner. Uh, I think that'd be a good way to, to summarize this one. Um, this one we had to, I hate to say, give up on, but uh, we, we really couldn't find a buyer after an exhaustive search. It was, uh, the company still operates today, but uh, it ended up doing a, a deal with a key employee as, a sto as opposed to an outside buyer. Uh, they are a, um, a custom auto performance improvement uh, business, more of a service-based business, but there's uh, some light fabrication that goes on in that shop as well. The business got the owner's uh, name on the door. Uh, the founder, is, as we've seen in many cases, uh, puts their name on the door uh, when they start the business. And uh, the business ends up being very much uh, about them and their abilities and, and uh, who they know and their management style. Uh, and so forth. So this one was uh, uh, highly dependent on the seller type of business. So tell me a little bit more when you talk about uh, automotive performance, you know, that type of thing, exactly kind of what does that mean? Uh, so our audience can, can kind of have a flavor and how long they've been in business and uh, kind of what kind of the motivation behind the, the, the owner was to actually exit. So if you've ever seen a fast car driving down the road, uh, perhaps exceeding the speed limit, <laughs> Um, and you heard a loud sound uh, associated with that car, uh, there, chances are that car had been modified. It wasn't stock. It didn't just roll off. Uh, uh, some some high-performance cars roll off the line like that, but in most cases, uh, there have to be some modifications to make a vehicle uh, perform better than just, uh, just the stock version. So that's what this business did. They uh, installed components. They did, as I said, some light fabrication uh, they did some software tweaking, uh, which basically got uh, helped help the owner of the vehicle, the, the operator of the vehicle, get more performance out of the vehicle. And performance, uh, at the end of the day, in this case, means uh, more speed over shorter distances. <laughs> as far as uh, how long they had been in business, I think it was about uh, 12, 13 years. The uh, founder had a racing career before that, so had made some name for himself uh, in the business. Uh, in, in a related industry and then started this uh, business um, because he was told he was so good at it. And then he had to start managing people. And then he had to start managing vendors and dealing with price increases and 
on and on. And, uh, and unfortunately, this this particular uh, owner got to the point of burnout and uh, wanted to make a, a transaction happen over a fairly short period of time. As I said, we we weren't. Unfortunately, we weren't successful and able to do that. Kind of curious, you know, and I think a, a lot of our audience can relate to the fact that, you know, people get in business for a lot of different reasons. Uh, sometimes they work for somebody else and they think they can do it better. Uh, and in this particular case, you know, he had a specific core competency, you know, having, you know, sort of come up in the automotive business and being in, in racing and understood performance and high performance engines, I imagine. And uh, that was kind of his passion and his livelihood and, you know, what he really understood. And he all of a sudden, you know, everyone is telling him how great he is and how uh, what he should do to kind of let the rest of the world know how they can benefit from his core competencies and expertise. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, as he made that transition into running his own business and kind of you know, incorporating into the business his knowledge and understanding and expertise. Was there a component that was kind of intellectual property that, you know, a mechanic just wouldn't know? You know, someone that really understood the high-performance vehicles and engines, uh, was he able to uh, incorporate that into his business or was that something he kept in his head? So uh, it definitely much is, is very much a case of the latter, as you just said, uh, the the intellectual property, as it were, was kept in his head, uh, not shared, as I remember, not shared with any employee. Uh, and so, as I often tell owners who are someday going to sell, you know, I say it more tactfully than this, but your job should be to make yourself irrelevant, as irrelevant as possible. And yes, that's going to mean hiring uh, people who need to know what you know now. Uh, yes, that's going to need perhaps in this case, for example, that's going to need to be someone who has or can develop a skill set that you have now that really makes the difference between you and your competitors. For every business owner that we know, there's there's probably uh, a high degree of control and the need to determine outcomes that affect themselves that's in that person. Uh, and that manifests itself in the form of, of a high need for control. And that was definitely the case in this situation, an owner that that doesn't delegate makes makes it difficult for the buyer to buy their business. An owner that doesn't, I'll say, uh, make themselves irrelevant or disseminate knowledge or document processes and procedures uh, somehow codify the intellectual property that that he or she has. I know it's scary. I, I know it, it's a, it's a it's a, in a way it's letting control of what you're in command of. But you have to think. You have to do what you can to think like a buyer. That's that's a very difficult mind shift for a lot of owners who are someday going to be sellers to make. You know, I, I like that uh, whole concept of thinking like a buyer, kind of moving yourself to the other side of the table. You're a seller, uh, but you really don't understand or appreciate what a buyer is thinking on the other side of the table. And I'm kind of interesting from your perspective, Bob, when you actually found buyers to come to the table, what was the first thing that either the first buyer or a number of buyers that you brought to the table, what were some of the first things that was of a concern to them? Because you mentioned something there that I think almost every founder entrepreneur that listened to this podcast probably thinks about or has heard about 
is that whole concept of understanding what is necessary to get the price that you wanted. What was the first thing that came up with the buyers on the other side of the table that they were concerned about? Yeah, even if it wasn't the fact that that the owner's name is on the door, they all all buyers walk into a a sell-side opportunity and they're thinking, wow, uh, how am I going to replace the owner on day one? How am I going to become this seller that I'm talking with on day one? I, I got I have to bond with their employees. I've got to know all the customers, at least as well as they do. I've got to have all my vendor relationships lined up. They have to become the seller on day one. And, and there's a lot of fear and apprehension, understandably, on the part of buyers that comes with that. I'll offer you this as well, and that is... Uh, for, for firms like us, the vast majority of our time is spent on what's called sell-side advisory. So clients come to us, they want to sell their company, they don't have an inside buyer, they don't have a, a transition plan, they don't have key people. So they have to find a, a buyer from the outside uh, completely. For every sell-side client that a, a firm like ours takes on, we end up talking with I'll say 15, 20, 25, 30 different buyers in some cases. That's a, that's a, potentially, that's a 30 to 1 ratio. So we're hearing all these objections. We're hearing all these points of view. We're hearing all these concerns and all these issues raised by buyers. And if you're in this business long enough, you yourself, even though you're working for the seller, you end up automatically thinking like a buyer. You end up coming to every uh, sell-side client, hey, this, this is where we're going to get beaten up. This is the, these are the questions that we're going to get asked. These are the concerns that buyers are going to raise because we hear it. We hear it all the time. 80 to 90% of the, of the questions and concerns are very common across all industries, all types of businesses, all sizes, all geographic locations. And, and as I said before, that, that owner who's someday going to be a seller to think like, uh, to think like a buyer is a very difficult mind shift to make, but it's, it's worth it. It's worth at some point before going to market, it's worth beginning that process at least. And hopefully before going to market, you are able to immediately uh, then start thinking like a buyer because it's, it's your buyer controls the options. Your buyer has the checkbook. Your buyer is going to go on. Your buyer's name is going to go on the loan that uh, for borrowed funds to buy the business or a group of investors are behind the buyer. We've seen that in many cases and there's risk that comes with that. So uh, making that transition to, to thinking like a buyer is, is very important. So once you mentioned, uh, as this transaction started to unfold, that everything was kept in his head, what type of intellectual property did that really play? They're, they're, if they themselves didn't have it, and I can't think of one of the dozen or so buyers that we ended up talking with, none of them had that that capability themselves. So the, the seller would have had to stay on for some length of time. And he was fine with that, because, but think from a buyer's perspective, that becomes a net cash drain on the business. And so if the, if the seller thinks that they're going to stay on board and get paid the same amount or something close to it, again, think like a buyer, put your buyer hat on. That deal becomes then less valuable. The buyer wants that intellectual property. They're willing to pay for that intellectual property, but it affects the terms of the deal. In many cases. So in this particular situation, uh, it sounds like the buyer really didn't 
have anyone else in the company that could do what he specifically could do. He understood. He started the company. He understood the company situation. And as long as he was there, to use a metaphor, the engine was running fine. But if he wasn't there, uh, the incoming buyer really didn't know if the engine was going to continue to run uh, as well as it was when he was there. And that was a concern is what I'm hearing you tell me. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, and whether it's automotive performance improvement uh, or or many other different types of industries where IP is possible, that the collection of IP, be it in the owner's mind or in key people's minds, uh, this is a common phenomenon across a lot of different industry types, at least that I represent. Uh, where the, the buyers don't have access to full information and understanding of the business. And in this case, the, 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 the know-how the, to get the job done, to keep the customers happy, to keep that cash flow profile going. And it sounds like the real motivation here was kind of uh, ready to move on, kind of burnout. And he, that, that was the real motivation for this buyer. And, you know, all the, it was so much different that I imagine auto racing was, and he had done this for a number of years and all the day-to-day operational challenges with people and vendors and financing and all those type of things just kind of, kind of burned him out is what it sounds like uh, was his motivation for stepping away. We, we've seen this with business owners often, right? They're, they're a technician at heart. They're, they've got an engineer mindset, you know, nuts and bolts, show me the details, let me look under the hood, pardon the pun, but um, then transitioning to, to being more of a manager. And that, that's a very difficult uh, skill set to also have in that, that engineer type of person. And so uh, unfortunately, uh, in, in some cases, a, a business just, it just implodes, it collapses, or in this case, it, it sells to an insider for a lot less value than might have been uh, obtained from an outside buyer. And so in this particular situation, when the buyers came to the table, it sounds like this transaction had its difficulties in closing. Can I ask, did it actually close or did it not? It did close, but to an inside buyer and the seller is going to stay on for some length of time. I think they got um, a, a fraction of what you know we were initially asking outside buyers to pay. Unfortunately, again, the business was just too dependent on them. Buyers picked up on this in the very first conversation. So if you were to offer a piece of takeaway information, kind of a key takeaway from this transaction in a sentence or two, what would that be? Well, I hate to put it this way, and I'm a lot more tactful with, with clients, but that would be um, make yourself irrelevant or Make yourself as irrelevant as possible. You've said that a couple of times. and I, I like the way you phrase it, irrelevant. Kind of expand on that. What does that really mean? What could someone do to make themselves irrelevant? And why is that so important to a buyer? To make yourself irrelevant is to, in my opinion, um, build a business that doesn't depend solely on you. Build a business that is able to sustain a cash flow profile or maybe even grow a cash flow profile without you being in full control of the business, without you knowing in this business owner's case, uh, without you having all the intellectual property locked up in your own mind. I mean, how to solve that is to put the right people in place. So I'm envisioning in his case, not just techs and mechanics in the back where dealing with the cars, but someone in a supervisory capacity Maybe someone much like himself that had an industry background, a racing background, but didn't have so much of an entrepreneurial tendency as to go off and start his own thing and, and take 
uh, you know, customers away from, from this particular business owner. That, that's a rare individual to find, uh, probably even more so in, a, in an employment market like this. But I'll repeat it. it. It's what's worth doing. With the buyer hat on, you have to be asking yourself as a seller, how, do, how, how would a buyer see my business? How would a buyer see this situation where I built something that doesn't just have my name on it, but is so critical to keeping that high cash flow going? I'm, I'm so critical to keeping that high cash flow growing. If I'm not here, what is a buyer willing to pay for that? What would I be willing to pay for that? Flip the script. It's a humbling experience. It's a humbling thing to do, but it's, it's something we encourage our sell side clients to do, not just once, but often. Well, that's uh, good insight and good information, Bob. So let's move over to a transaction that kind of went a little bit more smooth because this transaction went for a fraction of the price, even though it made it to the closing. Uh, the the owner got a fraction of what the value of the business was actually. So let's talk about a transaction that kind of went well. Well, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, let, let's talk about one where the um, the buyer was thinking one price and we were able to get four times that for the client. So <laughs> uh, I guess the heading on this one would be um, sometimes we have a chance to educate the buyer on what an opportunity is really worth. Uh, this particular business uh, was a um, an enterprise resource platform developer, so think software, and uh, they had a customer that was a publicly traded company. I assume they're still a publicly traded company. We were able to get this deal done, uh, but at a at a quite higher price than what the buyer was initially thinking. The um, the, the customer was highly dependent on what our client did for them. They were an ERP provider, basically a vendor, but they were critical to this particular buyer's operations in many of their plant locations. The seller was, uh, I'll say, getting burnt out. Uh, there's, that, there's that theme again, getting burnt out, and was imagining life beyond owning this business and dealing with this key customer as well. You know, visions of the boat being on the lake and fishing or uh, being on a golf course with your friends or relatives. Uh, some of that tends to take precedence in an owner's thoughts when they're in the, say, mid to late 60s or even before, but, but that tends to be where we see it happen the most. And this, this seller was uh, at about that age and... Uh, knew that this buyer was was highly dependent on what his what his business what his company did for them so we were engaged to uh, to make that transaction happen and i'll go ahead and caveat this we don't always get four times what the buyer initially offers for our clients and anybody who promises that uh in in the m a world is is probably uh probably misspeaking i'll be polite but um, we had an opportunity here to help the buyer understand based on how they viewed the deal, based on how they saw value being uh, created and what they should pay for. So I'm just kind of curious. So you 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 bring a buyer to the table. That's really, you know, the reason I imagine that they're making an offer in the first place, because they somewhat realize how important this company is to their own success. 
and they have their financial types or CFO or whoever, their outside advisors that they're working with, you know, create a spreadsheet that kind of justifies and supports the value or the price that they're willing to offer. And you get these and you review them with your client. And I'm just kind of curious of how you were able to go from X, whatever that X was, uh, that the buyer was offering uh, and, you know, flip that. So where you got four times and I agree with you, that's a little unusual uh, in the stories that we hear here on the podcast, uh, how you can go from one X to, to four X. Uh, we've had situations like this and sometimes more, but what were the specific dynamics that you were able to create and kind of the understanding of the realization that if you, they weren't going to pay for X, they may not might not get a deal and how that would impact them. I'm just kind of curious of how this unfolded without offending, you know, the buyer and having them pack up their stuff and walk away from the table. Of, you know, you got to be kidding type of attitude. So um, there were two components to this deal. One was one was, as you said, uh, strategic, you know, which which bled into the financial. <clears throat> and then there was the legal, uh, the legal aspect of this. So this this was a, an arrangement um, between our client and this buyer. They had been they had this relationship ongoing for years. The contract was running out. Our client was expressing some uh, desire to uh, to transition into retirement. And the buyer for one reason or another, we, we, we never found out, uh, just never saw it as a priority. Uh, we were, <laughs> that's, uh, it, it, which, uh, I'll say played into the reason they, they ended up, uh, played heavily into the reason they ended up, uh, needing to pay what our client thought, uh, the value needed to be, which by the way, we were able to justify if they sold this business, with this cash flow profile, we, we always do a valuation estimate on the front end of each of these sell side projects. So we can kind of sanity check what, uh, what the offers are as they come in. Um, even if we, even if we put a price on an opportunity in this case, we didn't put a, a price initially. So we did our valuation and it suggested that the, the buyer should pay this uh, four times what they initially asked. We, we have no idea why they initially offered one fourth of that figure, but uh, once we got in there and realized the critical nature of our client to their operations, um, we, well, we, the, uh, the attorney helped them remember that. So the attorney on their side of the table or the attorney on your side of the table? On the client side, uh, our client side of the table, um, you know, help, help remind them, Hey, you know, this, this contract is running out and, uh, you know, we need to, we need to make sure that, that things keep going forward. The strategic, you know, bleeding into uh, financial piece of this was when we when we got some type of, of analysis from the buyer from their team, you know, which usually ends up being an analyst who doesn't see the full situation, doesn't understand the full situation. Uh, when we get that, and it, it it's um, explained to us by the buyer how they view the deal, then you know, you take a few days, you you think about it. You reassess it. You convene with your client. You then get back to the the buyer and you say, uh, "Well, 
we, 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 <laughs> we appreciate the way that you see this, but uh, here's the reality of the situation. Here's how this deal needs to be priced. And, you know, by the way, we've also kind of sanity checked. Did you actually have other buyers that uh, may have stepped up to the table if they didn't move forward? We, we did have one, uh, whether they would have been able to keep the relationship with this client going or not would have been up to them. Uh, you know, that that's up to the, um, the buyer, of course, to be able to keep future opportunities uh, going. But at least we had this reference point. We have this, um, this, this sense of what this deal should be priced at in the form of an outside buyer from an outside buyer. And so at the very least, that's what we were asking for. You know, the, the, the integral nature of our client to their business model, how do you price that? You know, do you really want to um, start pricing a situation like that that has, uh, uh, you know, nuance to it? it? It's very difficult. So we just decided to, to keep it, you know, kind of a, an outside reference point standpoint. And our client was happy with that. They, they didn't want to get litigious in any way. So curious, uh, was there any financing involved or was it a cash deal? It was a publicly traded company. It was a cash deal. I was surprised there was no stock, but, you know, maybe they issue stock for uh, other deals that, uh, that, are, that, that are already in their industry, which I imagine they do. This was just not. This, was, this needed to be handled on a cash basis. So what's the big takeaway here? So we have a, a component of a large publicly traded company that has this, you know, customer, you know, the they're, it's really critical to their being successful in what they do. Uh, and, you know, their contract is coming up. Uh, what would be the big takeaway for anyone in our audience out there that has a customer that's a, you know, a major component to what that customer does? Uh, what would you say is a big takeaway or something that uh, a founder entrepreneur out there listening to the podcast might want to think about? Uh, as he listened to this story. Is this from the standpoint of um, a business owner that, that has a key vendor that is dependent on them or from the, from the standpoint of our client? Uh, uh, you know, just, you know, uh, a person listening to the podcast that has a key client, you know, that's a, he gets a lot of revenue from and that he understands that uh, they are important to their business model. Uh, what could they do to kind of position their company to extract the most value uh, when it comes time to think about an exit? Yeah. Um, okay, I get it. So I'm, I'm not an attorney, but uh, I would say uh, contractualize this this relationship for as long as possible in a way that is as transferable as possible. Well, I think that whole concept of transferable is very key uh, because a lot of contracts are not transferable and Sometimes you just assume you think that they are because it's kind of a component of most contracts. But uh, I think that's a key component. This kind of speaks to um, customer concentration as well, which uh, using the valuation tool that we have and, and it factors into other valuation methods as well, we can account for uh, in, uh, the percentage of gross sales that the top three customers represent. And buyers buyers are leery when there's over concentration or they they should be to the extent that it's not contractualized and to the extent that it's not transferable and every time buyers get worried you should think i'm going to take a haircut i'm going to lose 
um, I'm going to lose some value here that I'm not going to be paid for. Well, I think customer concentration is a key component here, but you were able to actually, you know, spin this to the your client's advantage because even though they got a lot of business, the strategic nature of the relationship kind of outweighed that. And so the key takeaway here is, is kind of I, I hear it, is that really understand uh, your position with the buyer if you are strategic or not, or just a financial purchase. And that if you can leverage your strategic position, you can actually do this 1x to 4x if you have, you know, a competent advisor, you know, advising you and understands that strategic component of educating the buyers of what that value really is, even if though they initially don't want to recognize that. That's right. And as a rule, um, it's kind of a given in our industry that strategic buyers tend to pay more look at a situation differently, be willing to pay more, uh, all else being equal than financial buyers. That's a broad brush stroke, I know. But um, if this is if this example that I just gave you is uh, is a valid one, uh, it, it makes a very valid point that strategic buyers look at deals very differently. And I'll add this, you know, here we are uh, approaching the middle of 2022 in this podcast. And, you know, are we in a recession? Are we about to enter a recession? Uh, time will tell. These things are always... Uh, clearly seen in the rearview mirror. But if we are about to enter a recession, I don't think that's going to take all buyers uh, out of the equation. Uh, deals will still get done, but it will be most likely strategic buyers that hang in there and get deals done. Our financial buyers you know, tend to back out earlier when times get tough, recessionary conditions take place. You know, they just can't make the numbers line up. For them, it's, it's, a, it's a bottom line calculation. But for a strategic or in this case, uh, you know, public strategic, maybe a private equity or family office, they're still going to be fairly active in the acquisition space. I think you could make a case. It'd probably be more active because values are going to drop a little bit. So what we're going to do, Bob, is chat about a couple of transactions here today. Uh, one that didn't go very well. Um, you know, we deal in this COVID world, recession-oriented world. Let's talk about uh, a transaction that you've been involved in that really had its challenges uh, during this kind of dynamic environment that we've uh, been experiencing in the last few years. Yeah, so here we are in uh, roughly mid-2022. Uh, I think we're past most of, of, of COVID pandemic's impact, but that doesn't mean that uh, businesses were unscathed. We all know, we, we've seen the headlines. We know the business types uh, that have been hit so very dramatically um by this unforeseen event we're kind of finished with the covid backlog uh in quarter, the second quarter of 2020 uh deal flow just collapsed there was there were no deals getting done no buying no selling of companies for most of the second quarter uh for for this third quarter certainly for the fourth quarter of 2020 deal flow started to pick back up you know our, our more adventurous sellers our more adventurous buyers started getting together and getting some deals further along uh, in progression. And then by, I'll say, Q2 of 21, it was just a full-on, uh, just just a madhouse getting deals done. 21 was, by my recollection, probably the busiest year for M&A in the last couple of decades. Um, in late 2019, we took on a new client that uh, was in the event space. 
you heard me right, the event space. So they provided uh, products to the uh, largely to the event planning industry, but in some cases they went direct. They might work with uh, event um, uh, wedding coordinators, for example, or companies to do on-site uh, uh, help with on-site events at different corporate locations. <clears throat> and so, in, in late of uh, late 2019, we brought a very well qualified buyer to them in their same industry. Uh, just a different end of the spectrum. So our client was more of a high touch, high margin, low volume. This particular buyer saw that as a niche opportunity because they were more of a low margin yet high volume player in that space, pretty well diversified. Well, it sounds like a pretty good buyer to bring to the table. Uh, tell me a little bit about the owners of this uh, event planning business. Was it a husband and wife team, brothers? And what was their motivation for selling? Uh, husband and wife team, I think at the time they were in their early 60s. So retirement was on the horizon. Um, I think it was 100% ownership. Him, she was help, helpful in the business. They had a few employees in the back. They had a few employees up front. Um, reason for selling was, was as we see a lot from, uh, from baby boomers, who, by the way, own roughly three out of four small businesses. And that is... Retirement is on the horizon. I've, I've got 60% or more of my net worth tied up in this business. I'm one of the three out of four who are counting on the sale of this business, net of taxes and net of advisory fees to have a successful retirement. I bought, uh, I've built this business or I might've acquired it and built on it. Now I'm ready to, to put it in someone else's hands because there's some value there to transition. So it, it should have been a, a planned, by all accounts, it should have been a planned event. There was, were it not for COVID, there were all kinds of reasons why this business could have been successful in someone else's hands. But as we know, along came COVID and, and shut down. And within, within a matter of months, year over year, this business had suffered 95, 96% losses. Frankly, I was, I was impressed that they were even able to stay in business, but that's because so many others like them in, in the event industry had dropped out just completely shut their doors. And all this business value just dissipated back into the marketplace. But our client uh, hung in there. Unfortunately, we were never, never able to get that deal done. Now they were stuck back, you know, in a basically a five-year resurrection plan to get that business back to some semblance of what it was before. And I think they're about halfway through that. You know, so in the situation that the original interest that was expressed by someone else in the industry, and what did they see in the, the smaller, low volume, high margin type of business? And while they were high volume, low margin, what did they see in this business? How did they think that would add on or help them in their, their specific niche? Well, obviously, they didn't see COVID coming. Um, no one did, I guess, until you know the end of the first quarter of 2020. This particular buyer saw, they obviously saw the, the larger margins and they were accustomed to. They were very attracted to that. For the same dollar of revenue, more uh, net income gets pushed to the bottom line. I think they also saw an ability to automate what they were doing. Um, and whereas the seller was you know, more of a high touch human intervention type of business model. They had more machinery in their business, uh, a lower touch by the employees. And so they envisioned being able to, to not only obtain this cash flow, but squeeze even more margin out of it. 
<clears throat> the second opportunity they saw was uh, the ability to leverage their connections and uh, to take business away from other high margin players in the industry as well. They fancied themselves as a, as the as a firm that could through you know, hard marketing and, uh, and aggressive networking, they, they saw themselves as being able to take more market share away in that high margin, uh, that high margin end of the business. And when the transaction, I think you said it was the end of 2019, before everything started to come unraveled, uh, did the uh, larger company that was making the offer, did they make an offer pre COVID? And did the seller kind of drag his feet thinking, well, maybe I can get a little bit better down the road or let's kind of squeeze a little bit more out of this? How did that kind of unfold? Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. Uh, as we see often with sellers, well, Hey, I I've gotten, I've gotten this great offer as a great starting point. Maybe, maybe I can get more out of them. And so I'm going to, I'm going to hesitate. I'm going to play the game in this particular case. We did receive not necessarily a hard offer, but an indication of interest in the form of about 80% of the asking price, which is, which is a great place to start. You know, when a buyer comes out of the gate offering 50, 60% of what we're asking, that's just a non-starter. That, that's just, into, unless it's a fire sale, unless our client is just absolutely desperate to do the deal, um, that, that, you, that deal is probably not gonna work out. I have a saying that fair deals get done. Anything that comes in between 75 and 85% is a great place to start. We're on our way toward doing a fair deal. But our sell side client hesitated, Bob, I'm not, I'm not just going to give this away. You know, um, this, this is going to be a slow walk. And again, hindsight is crystal clear. But So from the point of timing, we're talking fourth quarter, November, December of 19. Uh, they have an offer, uh, you know, Offer came fairly quickly, 80%. Uh, they're kind of dragging their feet. Just a few months later, everything disappeared, right? That's exactly right. And a slow rebuilding process has to begin from there. You know, you, you, you take on loans, you get triple P, you do the EIDL, you, you, you do what you can to hang on to the premises, whether you own it or lease it, try to keep your key people. Um, a lot of owners went through this. A lot of them dropped out, and a lot of business value was was erased. I think this owner will will get back to it, though. I, I think I think they're uh, they were just young enough. I think I say young, you know, they were in their early to mid sixties. They they had just enough gas in the tank left um, to to want to cross the finish line strong. I'm pretty sure they'll get there, but it'll take a while. So, if the big takeaway from here, here we have an audience of founder entrepreneurs out there that you know, are, are looking at the same type of dynamics, maybe not another pandemic uh, coming along, but we have a pending recession either this year or maybe next year. Uh, there's a lot of economic activity going on right now. But, you know, if you're thinking about selling uh, and you don't know what's around the corner, especially in the kind of the dynamic evolving financial markets that we have and the volatility in the stock market and things of that nature, what would be the big takeaway from this story that might apply to, you know, founder entrepreneurs that are thinking of selling in the next six to 12 months? What would be your key takeaway from this uh, story that you just shared with us? I would say don't be greedy. You, you could say, 
Well, Bob, there, there is such an enormous amount of deal activity, and you'd be right, even still, mid-2022. Uh, I don't think 22 is going to turn out to be as robust as 21. My crystal ball is no longer working. It's, it's still in the shop. I'm sorry, I can't give 100% uh, uh, forecast on that. But um, it, it, just to cut down to it, and to be frank, if a seller thinks they're going to have even under the best of conditions and the best point in the economic cycle, that if a seller thinks they're going to have a long line of buyers all out waiting outside their door at the moment that the seller is ready to go to market and all those buyers are waiting full price offers or premium offers, that's not very likely. Buyers are nervous people in general. They're skeptical people in general. And they would be right to be because there's a huge information gap between what a buyer knows by the time closing comes and what a seller knows after years and years of ownership of that business. There's a huge gap in what is known and what needs to be known. And if, for, the, for the seller that's able to land a buyer of this highly illiquid asset where there's this huge information gap and we're finally getting to the point of agreeing on price and terms, I won't say run with, with every seller that you know that you get to that stage with, but count that, count yourself very fortunate that someone or some people or group or institution or entity got to that point with you and is willing to absorb this entity, buy this entity from you. That is a, a pretty rare occurrence. And to put some numbers to that, how rare it is, I think only about 20% of companies are ever taken to market. And only about 20% of those ever sell. Now, by my math, that's about 4%. 4% of small businesses ever transact. And that ebbs and flows a percentage point or two, perhaps, depending on where we are in the economic cycle. But in and of itself, that is an incredibly low statistic. And there's a whole lot of reasons that go into that, um, to, to reasons as to why that percentage is so low. But the, the biggest one is buyer and seller just can't agree. They can't get to closing. For the seller that gets a buyer to closing, don't be greedy. There's a pretty good chance you need to consider that deal. Well, I think it's uh, good advice here, especially since we have, you know, the uncertainties in the market, uh, you know, with inflation uh, on the horizon. Uh, it's picked up and it may continue. Uh, you know, the volatility, as I said, uh, in the financial markets. Um, if you are thinking about selling, I think Bob's... Uh, advice here is, uh, you know, understand where you're at, position your company appropriately to be able to be sold, because I think Bob is right. Uh, the industry statistics are, is that uh, not a lot of businesses that actually get listed, find a buyer uh, and actually make it to the closing table. And I think the big takeaway here on this transaction is if this buyer uh, had come to the table, even though it was 80%, of the offering price, asking price, uh, in hindsight, I'm sure the the seller uh, would have jumped at that opportunity to, you know, take the 80% and uh, close the deal. And now he's looking at a long, arduous path to rebuilding his business from an unforeseen event that you just can't anticipate, which is the COVID issue. But nevertheless, we have other unseen events and uncertainties in the future. So if you get an offer, if you are listing your business or you're planning on listing your business, you know, when that offer comes in, don't just dismiss it. 
Uh, if it's a viable offer from a qualified buyer, it's best to get serious with your advisor and really take a hard look at that. And as Bob said, don't get greedy. Bob, uh, this has been great. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk a little to our audience here about your experiences, the transactions you've been involved in. And I appreciate you uh, offering some of your insights and wisdom that you've gotten over the years and decades. If people wanted to reach out to you, someone in the audience uh, had a question or uh, are in the Southeast there that might want to chat with you a little bit about their specific situation, what would be the best way for them to reach out and get a hold of you? Marvin, happy to help. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, people can reach me by phone, email, be great. Uh, phone number 770-633-1083. Email is uh, the letter B, followed by my last name, T-A-N-K-E-S-L-E-Y at nearycap.com. That's N-E-R-I-C-A-P.com. All right. Great, Bob. Really appreciate your time here today. We'll be back with Diana. Diana, I'd like to have you just take a few minutes and introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your business. And then what we're going to do is jump in and chat about uh, three of the transactions that we've had on the podcast this month uh, that uh, kind of deal with how to extract value out of a business. So if you're a business owner out there, a founder that is contemplating uh, exiting uh, in the next year or so, uh, this discussion will be very enlightening for you because so much about what is extracted uh, from years of hard work and toil and and sweat that you've put into your business uh, comes down on being able to properly position your business. And uh, a lot of that deals with how you think about yourself, how you view your business and and really how to get into that mental space of being able to position your business properly and to get into the mindset of being able to extract value out of your business that is really there but may not be able to be realized without, you know, the proper steps being taken. So what I'd like to do here uh, is introduce Diana. Would you take a few minutes, Diana, and just talk a little bit about who you are, where you're located, and uh, kind of what you do? Yeah. And um, I am Diana Murphy. I've been a coach for eight years. I have always coached the high ego, the type A person. I worked in health and weight loss when I first started my work. And I quickly realized that the biggest way for everyone to change is to understand more acutely and more awarely what their mindset was creating, what that group of thoughts that they that owners and high achievers um, really embrace and what that creates in their business and in their life. And I stepped into this exit space in the last two years, um, seeing such a need for owners to understand what was going on for themselves personally, so that they did not hurt their deals or hurt the outcome. And um, so this is where um, I had reached out to you because you had a podcast in this space and you and I have been speaking about partnering. And so this is just the beginning of our journey of integrating some of the work that I'm doing in mindset for owners. Now, this month we've had uh, Bob uh, Tankusti uh, on the podcast. Uh, Bob is an M&A advisor uh, in the Southeast. Um, been doing this a whole long time. And if you listen to the uh, interviews with Bob, 
uh, he talked about three stories that we're going to kind of critique and review here today and uh, kind of talk about how, you know, mindset, you know, kind of uh, is important. So we're going to talk about the first uh, transaction that, that was a little challenging uh, for uh, Bob and his client. And it was in the, you know, aftermarket automotive performance uh, business. Uh, the business that he outlined and described was that the founder and owner of this business actually had had his name on the door. Uh, and that is really important for buyers uh, when they see that. Uh, there may be a lot of value there and there may be a lot of branding going on. And the buyer is going to immediately start thinking about, well, how are we going to be able to operate this business without the you know, the named partner, the name owner on the business. And so what they did is they took, uh, you know, cars that, you know, were came off of the production run and they enhanced the performance. They increased the horsepower from four or five hundred horses to six, seven, eight hundred horsepower. Uh, and uh, he was able to do this because of the intellectual knowledge that he had because he was a race car driver and he understood this intuitively and he developed some unique processes and software uh, to be create a value add to the business. And uh, he was getting a little burned out. Uh, you know, he's a race car driver. Now he's dealing with employees and vendors and, you know, customers. And and he just, after a period of years, just was wanting to step away from the business. And so when you run into situations like that, um, Diana, uh, what if, if you were to be coaching an individual like this, how would you inter interface with this type of individual? So I think what's so important, what I saw in this story that was so clear is that the, um, the, the talents and skills that, and perseverance that are required for an owner to build a, build, build a business and be successful and to build this brand, to have the ego behind the brand, were the parts that then almost like what we talk about in coaching can be the shadow side of that skill. But I think it's, it's so much more simple than that. It's that, um, I want owners to hear that when they start feeling kind of um, scared about their future, they're scared they're not going to be able to let go. They're burned out. They're a little um, reticent about being involved in that company beyond a certain date. And when they get fixed in that space, they are not able to shift into that mindset Bob was talking about by being in that buyer mindset. And they're like, this would be a space where if I was working with this owner, we would start looking at what was burning them out, which actually was the reason he wanted out so bad is he had not delegated. He had not been in a space where he had started transferring property. So when you say transferring property, you mean intellectual property, right? Intellectual property. Sorry. That's the know-how. That's the magic sauce that no one in the company knew except him. And he probably took some pride in being the kingpin and uh, always the go-to person. No, and I want to help those owners out there. The, the getting strong about what you want and expect is important. But when you are realizing and working with advisors and you do have chosen to sell, being more open-minded and processing some of those emotions are like, but I thought it was going to go this way. And the anger that they can have in those situations, 
that is really to take a step back and really take in so that they don't lose an opportunity. Because if they had solved, started, stayed with the company, they would have had higher value and could have done what the inside buyer ended up doing anyway, was learning the business and coming back through. If they have been able to delegate ahead of time a little bit or stay a little longer, it could have totally been a financial advantage and a way for that owner to have more legacy because they were more involved in the transition. And I just think owners get scared and so weary of the work that they're doing that they cannot see that it's like, nope, I'm done here. And I just would beg owners to just take a breath and get more possibility focused. What else? What's a simpler way I can do this? What is a way in this deal that I can write it that I can still, I can be involved, but I can still get freedom. So when do you typically get involved with your clients? Uh, Is it during the actual transaction that you're brought in by an advisor when there are issues like this? Or is it uh, someone that's just in the beginnings of a thought process of uh, starting to position their business for an exit? It really is at all the stress points. So I've had experience where someone has inherited a business that they didn't really think that they were going to be running and they decided to take it on um, as a, a founding son, you know, founder's son um, told you know, never wanted to be involved in the business, but saw the value and decided to go all in. But the stress of becoming an owner overnight was really tough on on that person. So he sought my my work. Another is those that have sold and don't know what to do with their lives. And that's where I would like all advisors in this space would encourage owners to look early on getting insightful, and that's coaching, insightful about what they really want. And so I've worked at all edges of the deal because that's where whenever there's an inflection or stress point, that is where we all as human beings deserve to understand more about what's going on with us. So we don't sabotage the best that's available to us. So the next story that Bob really chatted about was the story of an ERP, you know, uh, enterprise resource, you know, product software company, where um, the owner of that company had really developed a proprietary type of process and software and had a number of clients. But over time, the clients that he had really kind of zeroed in on a specific client that became a large component. Now, there's a danger here of uh, concentration of revenue. And that's what any advisor, anyone out there will tell you that you are very vulnerable when, you know, 30, 40, 50 or more percent of your revenue comes from a single client. But there is also an opportunity often if it's handled properly uh, where uh, you can become a strategic acquisition. And everyone knows that in a strategic type of acquisition discussions, a strategic acquirer values your company for something more than what the financial performance indicates that that company might be worth. And in this particular story that Bob shared with us, uh, the strategic buyer came to the table. They realized that they wanted to acquire this company because it was integral to a part of what they were doing. It enhanced the value of their own product offerings. And so, 
they decided to make an offer to acquire this company. And so they offered X. And because Bob, uh, the, this owner had Bob as an advisor, uh, Bob was able to take the spreadsheets that had been given to him and to position that discussion from X to eventually 4X in a cash deal. Uh, so you went from, I'll take, pick a number of a million dollars to $4 million, uh, you know, because of being able to strategically position the value of what you had to the other side of the table, the buyer on the other side of the table and getting them to understand your strategic worth to them. So when you're in a situation like this, what did you take away from this story that, you know, talks about positioning and thoughts and mindset? Yeah, I I thought this was a perfect example of on the selling side, true readiness, truly being ready to be to sell and sophisticated, you know, we had sophistication on both sides. And so, and that the seller really owned their value and like historically had created this powerful relationship. Now on the buyer side, I think what was beautiful and we can't always control was how sophisticated the buyer was. This was not the first time. This was a sophisticated situation. So they were able to quickly see the value. So I think it's a magic, you know, this is one of those deals where even Bob admitted, it's like, hmm, we don't always have situations where we get four times. But when you have a very prepared seller and have done business at a level that they had for this buyer where this made total sense. So there's a lot that happened before this moment that created that high, high value on both ends of the table. Don't you agree? I totally agree because it is all about positioning. It's all about yes. preparation. It's all about being ready. It's all about having your ducks lined up in a row. It's all about, uh, as you as you said, it's the mindset of when you go to market and buyers start to show up and they start to show up with different types of offers, <clears throat> You have to be emotionally, mentally prepared uh, to endure the rigors of the closing process because it's not easy. And in this particular situation, uh, the fees that were paid to the M&A advisor, whatever those fees were, were well worth it because you were offered a dollar and you got four dollars. And whatever fees that were paid was one of the best investments that seller ever made of having the right advisor on board. And so, but even more importantly, as I think you pointed out, Diane, it's really the entire uh, positioning in the mindset that you are ready. Now is the time. And, uh, you know, you, ju you just work through that process and understanding what your the value you are bringing to the table and not selling yourself short. And what's so fascinating here is how brave even the seller had to be to come back with a four-time offer, like a you know response to the offer. And so I think there's a lot of nuance here of how powerful and great this deal was. So I think there's a lot you can take away from it as a seller is when you are being asked by your advisors to prepare in different ways that are really asking a lot of you that you trust that more. And we all say this in the expert advisor world, if you just trusted your advisors, but I want to encourage all sellers there that, that this 
really helping yourself when you are in this stressful space to know that you will naturally, if you're in fear and you're in this new space of actually changing your whole life because you're selling, that you are naturally going to be more stubborn. You're going to be more reticent. And the more you can be aware that that's normal in this type of situation and to take more stock. And I would say for most sellers, taking those big meetings they have with their advisors and giving themselves time to not stew, but to look like, where are they right? Instead of always standing their ground and holding firm, because that is just a sign of fear and being in a new space. And it makes so much sense. But as a, as a seller, if you really want to be about getting to that finish line, and we hear from Bob that so few do, that what if that mental shift of being aware that, ooh, I am stressed out because this is really different and I don't know what's in my future, and to just take pause and really be listening to all the facts in a, in a calmer space. Not always in that meeting. You, know, you sometimes can't hear in that meeting where you hear what the value of your company really is. <laughs> Then, yeah, it makes total sense. The next story that Bob shared with us was this event planning business. I love this story. Um, where, you know, Bob made the comment that fair deals always get done. And, you know, being ready, we talked about being ready. And we never know what's around the corner. And in this particular business, uh, event planning, you know, what happened to event planning businesses? We're here in 2019 when this business went on the market in the fourth quarter of 2019. Uh, the business was listed for sale. They immediately attracted the attention of a, a strategic someone in their industry uh, that came to the table. And they did not offer, you know, full price. They didn't offer. They came in at a fair price. Uh, 80% of the uh, asking price was offered. Uh, of course, now we have a buyer that uh, understands the value because what is Bob outlined the structure of this deal and why the buyer was interested because the buyer was in a low margin, high volume event business. The seller of the business was more boutique. They were in a low volume, high margin, high touch business. And the seller saw value in that. They saw that they could probably exploit that niche. And so they made a fair offer of 80%. And we have a seller here that uh, thought, uh, well, you know, first buyer, you know, I, I, I think I'm going to hold out for a little bit more. Uh, and he drug his feet. And of course, we all know what happened in the first quarter of 2020. COVID started to appear and by the end of the quarter, COVID is in full swing and businesses shut down all over the country. And what happens to the event business where people aren't getting together in face-to-face -face events? His business, 95, I think Bob said 96% uh, loss of revenue overnight. The impressive thing is he was able to keep it together and actually continue his business where a lot of his competitors didn't. So in this type of situation, the takeaway on that was don't get greedy, you know, be ready to act. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's so much more here, <laughs> right? So let's talk about yeah. that. Let's talk about what's there's so much more here. What does that mean? What would, if you had been an advisor for the seller, what would you have done? Yeah. So all of us have sold how most most owners, I want you to hear this, have all sold homes and they've all had this situation. All of us have, if we've moved a little bit, 
we have had this situation where that first offer is usually the strongest offer. Unless you have multiples, like in our market right now, there is still some, you know, where multiple offers are at the same time. And I think it just showed for these owners that they really, truly were not mentally ready. And I think the fear of that there's something better and they weren't quite like, I believe that you should not have to be burned out to be ready to sell. We saw how that did not help in a previous situation. And so... I just think for this um, group, we want to get offer a lot of kindness that who would know that around the corner was something that would 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 eradicate ninety percent of their revenue, and that they have the fortitude to be real building this business is just phenomenal. And I believe that what's supposed to happen happens, but if an owner that's listening right now is so concerned about all the other possibilities, but is not looking clearly at what is there and entertaining and listening to Bob say an 80% offer is a great place to start and not leaning in that the work that they need to do is, are we, why are we freaking out a little bit about leaving this business, which is a natural response and getting the support and the time of thinking like, okay, what do we really want? so that they can allow that process. They could have allowed that process and been you know, cheering in March, 2020, that they had taken that opportunity. But it really is just triggered fear. It's a normal, normal human reaction in this because we owners really see a cliff after their businesses sell. And I, I want to share with them, there is a ledge below there that there's a great life. <laughs> and we all have seen it. Marvin, you've been in part of a lot of transactions. You've seen this in your own life. And I just think for owners that are really listening, that really leaning in on the good, what is really present and just taking stock of why you're being reticent. Why are you backing off? Well, I think that uh, the old adage that we hear so often in the M&A field and advisors is that time kills deals. Hesitation. We saw it here. Hesitation did. I'm going to wait for the next one. Yeah. We, do, we can't look around the corner all the time, but that is a something that is true, is that if deals tang, tend to drag out, uh, too many things can go wrong. And so that whole idea is when you decide to sell, you need to be ready to sell and you need to be able to uh, be in that mental state of mind that when the right offer comes along, that you're ready to uh, engage seriously and not to lallygag and drag your feet and move toward closing. You said rigor, you know, the rigors of the sale. I think that this is where as advisors, we need to be compassionate, but we also, you know, for all the owners that are in this process of thinking about selling is really making sure you have a mental support. Is this a mentor that sold a business before? Certainly a coach. Um, others that communities that are involved in selling. I'm involved in XPX as Bob is um, in Atlanta. And some of that is to make sure that owners have the right support as they go through the rigors. And I just think that would be my highest suggestion is really make sure you have people in your community. You're doing something you've never done before in most cases and have people around you that understand the rigors of that. Yeah, you really need to develop a team. Uh, that's team on the financial side, the legal side, your 
financial advisor side, your M&A advisor, a coach like yourself. Yeah, definitely a coach. You really need to put all those things in place before you pull the trigger and you walk up to the starting line to, you know, enter that race to sell your business. Because it really is somewhat of a race of getting from the finish line, starting gate to the to the finish line. So this has been great, Diana. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me here, uh, you know, at you know, talking about some of these transactions we've had here this month. Diana, if someone wanted to reach out to you and get a hold of you, so uh, chat a little bit about their specific situation, uh, what would be the best way for them to do that? So my website is dianamurphycoaching.com. And you can get involved by just signing up for my newsletter on that front page. And or you can also skip to podcast where you can also listen to some of the other ideas and mindset and get the help you need um, through listening to that mindset. Regret Proof Your Business is the podcast. All right. Well, this has been great, Diana. Thank you for joining me here today. So this is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast saying, we'll see you on the next episode. Yes. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.